we turn to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the, uh, to the Colossians. Now, when we read the epistles, it must always be remembered that they are letters. Colossians was a letter written, uh, written to a congregation. It was never written as a book with four chapters. And so the chapter divisions sometimes break up the thought that there is uh, in the book. There were no chapter divisions in the original. And it's unfortunate that the flow of the argument sometimes is interrupted. And that's the case in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2 is a clear continuation of the thought that was expressed in chapter 1 and verse 29. He says in verse 29, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul, as we looked at last week, Paul was very concerned, not just for Colossae, he was concerned for all the churches there in the Lycus Valley. And he wants to warn them of the very real danger of false teaching. And the Apostle speaks of his struggle. Now, the word struggle comes from the same root as the word striving in chapter 1 and verse 21, uh, 29. He's struggling on behalf of the believers, even although he is separated from them. He struggled for them in several ways. He struggled, first of all, by providing ammunition against false teaching. He provides ammunition for them by clearly setting out the truth of the gospel, and then thirdly, by his constant prayer for them. The struggles that Paul had for these believers took place within his own heart, in his anxiety, sympathy, and intercession for these people. Now, there's a lesson here for us that we'll come to in a moment. Paul demonstrates a great generosity of heart and spirit. For, as he says himself, it is unlikely that he had a personal acquaintance with many or indeed any of the believers in Colossae. Nevertheless, he mentions specifically those who personally did not know him as the object of his, of, of his concern and prayer. And here Paul demonstrates the true heart of the man of God. He loves believers for the sake 
of the Lord. He does not rely upon his own knowledge of the people or of their situation to stimulate or to encourage his concern for them. Paul had obviously heard of the church in the Lycus Valley. He visited them. Uh, uh, he visited that area in his missionary journeys. Now, although he didn't personally know the believers in Colossae, he'd heard of them, he knew of their struggles, he knew that there was false teaching, and it concerned him. Even though he was not responsible for them, he had no real links with them except as a believer, and yet Paul has this intense desire and concern for them. And there's a great lesson here for believers in every place. There is a great responsibility placed upon the believer to be concerned and to pray for his fellow believers. If you think about it, God has been very good to us here in this land. We have a great background, we have a great history, and we have been blessed by faithful preaching over the years. Here in this congregation, you've been blessed by faithful ministry. You have been instructed, you have been taught, you have been encouraged, you have been rebuked, you have been challenged in all sorts of different ways by the preaching of the word. And yet, there are other believers in other countries, in other lands, that haven't had this, and they don't have it. They can't meet together as we do here. Surely we have a great responsibility to pray for them, even though we don't personally know them. As Paul was so concerned for this church in Colossae, so we should be concerned for believers in other places. And there are many sources of information that we can have about believers in other places. Now, we can't, we can't pray for everyone, but we should be praying for our fellow believers in other places. And I, I think particularly where God's people suffer persecution, those of us who don't suffer persecution should be extremely earnest in our praying for them, that God will sustain them and strengthen them and encourage them. There are many different congregations. There are many different denominations. But there's only one church of Jesus Christ. We're all part of that church. And we should be concerned and pray for the other parts of this church. So then let's have a look at these verses at the beginning of Colossians chapter 2. And the first thing that we see is Paul's desire for the church. The desire that Paul had for the church. 
And when Paul states his own desire for these Christians, he is simply setting out what God would have all Christians to be. He desires four things for them. He first of all desires the strengthening of their hearts. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about strengthening the heart? Now, the heart in Scripture is more than just the seat of the emotions. It refers principally to the whole inward personality, including the thought and the will, as well as the emotions. I draw your attention to three verses that speak about the heart. Genesis 6 and 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there the heart speaks of the thoughts and the will and so on. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 17. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. I set my heart to know wisdom. That's got nothing to do with feelings. It's to do with the mind and thinking and so on. And then in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. So he calls upon them, and he prays for them, that their hearts might be strengthened, that the whole of their inner being, that their minds might be strong, that their wills might be strong, that their desires might be strong, that every part of their being would be strengthened. And what's Paul talking about when he talks about it being strengthened? Surely he means it being strengthened by the truth, be strengthened in the truth. Remember that these believers were facing false teachers. They were, false, they were, they were facing people who were coming to them with strange and peculiar doctrines. And for many of them, these things were attractive. These things were something new and different. And Paul says, what I want for you is for your heart to be strengthened. Be firm in the truth. Be firm in what you know. Firm in what you believe. And stand fast. But not only so. He calls, he asks for the strengthening of their hearts. But he also asks that they be bound together in love. This is love in the Lord Jesus Christ and is thus a love of the truth. He wants the congregation to be bound together in love. Now that sounds very nice, doesn't it? But what does it mean? 
If they are bound together in love, they will be bound together in the same truth. They will be bound together with the same desires. They will be bound together for the advancement of the cause of Christ. You see, there would be very little hope of false teachers gaining ground within the church if true believers were bound together in love for Christ, love for his truth, and love for one another. This is a congregation that has in the past experienced conflict. It's not good. But the congregation has remained together, steadfast in love for Christ, love for his word, and love, uh, uh, and love for one another. Paul prays that their hearts might be strengthened, that they might be strong in themselves, strong in the faith. And he prays that they might be bound together in love. Love of the truth, love of Christ, love of honesty, and love for one another. But he also asks the third thing. He asks for the strengthening of their hearts, the binding together in love, and the assurance of the truth. One of the greatest riches for the believing saint is to be firmly convinced of the truth and not to be swayed from that conviction, no matter how plausible the arguments might be. The Colossian believers, believers were being assailed by all kinds of exciting and novel teaching that seemed to offer them deeper insights into the ways of God. These Gnostic people were presenting exciting things to the people. Can you imagine them coming and saying, you know, if you really want to know more of Christ, here's a way to do it. And it's very simple. Of course you believe in Christ. Of course that's important. But listen, if you want to go deeper into these things, here are some ways that you can do it. And it's very easy for even faithful believers to be swayed by persuasive teaching. How many congregations where once the truth was proclaimed have been led aside into error by persuasive teaching, by some silver-tongued preacher who comes with something new and fresh and exciting and it stirs them up. What Paul prays is that they come to an assurance of the truth. And the only way that these Colossian believers could combat these exciting teachers, uh, teachings was through a firm conviction that what they had been taught by the apostle was absolutely true. You see, if we know the truth, Jesus said the truth will make you free. But if we know the truth, then there is no chance of us being 
swept aside by false teaching, turned aside by false teaching. You remember the Bereans? Paul preached. Now, what an amazing privilege to have the Apostle Paul preaching in your midst. But Paul commended the Bereans because they searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. And that's what Paul prayed for here for, in, for, uh, for these uh, believers. The strengthening of their hearts, the binding together in love, the assurance of the truth, and the fourth thing, the knowledge of the mysteries of God. The knowledge of the mystery of God. Now, in the New Testament, a mystery is not what we consider to be a mystery. A mystery was simply a truth that would have remained hidden had God not revealed it. So Paul says to them, there are things that God will reveal to you. These are mysteries that have been hidden for generations, but now they're being revealed to you because this is God's word. Paul desires that believers might know Christ, for it is in him that all wisdom and knowledge are to be found. Again, you see, he's, he's counteracting the teaching of these Gnostic believers. They're saying, there's more. There are great mysteries. There are great mysteries that we can reveal to you. And Paul says, listen, what you need to know is the mystery that God has revealed in Christ. The glorious, life-giving and life-preserving truths are hidden from the ungodly, but wonderfully revealed to the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are things that are hidden. The vast majority of people out here today in, in Lockbrickland, in Northern Ireland, these truths are hidden from them. They don't know them. But you know them. You know them because they have been revealed to you by faithful preachers of the word of God and by the word of God itself. So that's the desire that Paul had for the church. That their hearts would be strengthened, they'd be bound together in love, they'd have an assurance of the truth, and they would have this knowledge of the mysteries of God. The second thing that we see in this, in this chapter is the deception that Paul warned against. We've seen the desire that Paul had, now the deception that Paul warned against. In writing this letter to the church, Paul was very concerned that the professing believers in Colossae might be deceived by false teaching. He wanted to guard them and protect them. Now, it would appear that already in the church in Colossae, there were false teachers already at work amongst them. It wasn't that he was warning about something that would come, 
He's warning them about, about something that was actually present in the church. Now, quite possibly, they were not believers from Colossae, from amongst the, the, the group themselves, but they were itinerant preachers going from place to place, spreading their false teaching. And it's interesting to note that Paul here warns them about being deceived. It's not that they were so unsound in their faith and in the truth that they would run after any false teaching that happened to come along. It was rather, I think, that little by little they would be induced to accept new truth because it sounded plausible and spiritual. I don't know about you, but I've heard people talking about new truth. Now, my antennas immediately go up when people talk about new truth. It's not new truth we need, it's old truth. It's the old truth revealed in the word of God. But you hear people talking about a new way, a new thing, a new truth. And sometimes people are induced to accept this new truth because it sounds plausible. It sounds spiritual. And the reason I read again that passage from 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 11, is that we must never forget that the devil himself is sometimes disguised as an angel of light. Just because somebody is a good preacher, just because somebody has a way with words, or is a pleasant personality, don't accept what they say. Test it by the scripture. Test it by the word of God. You see, that is really what Paul is, is warning them about. He's saying, don't be deceived. And Paul believed that the best way to protect believers against his false teaching was to direct their mind to Christ. You see, somebody who is firmly convinced that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in Christ, they won't go somewhere else to find it. If everything that you need is in Christ, then why would you search somewhere else for it? If everything that you need is to be found in God's word, why go somewhere else? You know, sometimes people come with these new theories, new doctrines, or looking at something in a new way to get new truth out of it. I would urge you, to not do it. It is not always wise to delve into false teaching. Now it is true that God gives the gift to some people to examine false teaching 
and to seek to expose it and to explain it. And we thank God for people like that. But for most of us, to delve into false teaching is more likely to lead us astray than it is to bring us truth. We may sometimes want to, for example, we all have uh, Jehovah's Witnesses coming around the door uh, or Mormons or people like that. Now, there are some people who can delve into the, into the depths of, uh, of Jehovah's Witness teaching, for example, and can answer the points point by point on the doorstep. I don't believe it's wise to do that. I had a man come to my door, and uh, he was a Jehovah's Witness. And he spoke to me about the Jehovah's Witnesses, about the doctrines that they, they were teaching. And I directed him to Christ, the Son of God, uh, the only Redeemer of men. And he told me that, that Jesus was not God but he was a God. And I asked him where he got that from. And he said, well, it's in the Greek. I said, okay, um, do you understand, can you read Greek? And he said, yes. I said, wait a minute, at the door, I went upstairs to my study and I got my Greek Testament. And I handed him the Greek Testament. And I said, show me. And he didn't know what was the front and what was the back. He hadn't a clue. And I said to him, look, it's no shame not to know Greek, but it is a shame to lie about it. And I said, if you're lying, it doesn't say much for the religion that you're promoting. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all do that. What I'm saying is that some people have gone in depth into these false teachings and they're able to explain them and expose them. But for most of us, for most of us, it is much safer to know the truth, that we know the truth. We don't have to delve into error. We simply have to present the truth. And that's what Paul was warning them again. He was warning about, uh, he, uh, about being deceived. You see, he had asked for the strengthening of their hearts and their minds, and now he says, look, don't be deceived. Stick to the truth. Stick to Christ. And then thirdly, there is the devotion that Paul commends. Now, Paul's concern for the church, his anxiety about this false teaching that was coming, did not blind him to the positive things that were going on in the church in Colossae. There was unity in the fellowship. He praises their order or their discipline. And the word that's used there when he speaks about, uh, about their order Excuse me. 
He says, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you've been taught uh, with, with thanksgiving. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse 5, he says, Yet I am, uh, I, I am with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now that word order comes from the Roman army. And one of the, one of the things that made the Roman army invincible was their discipline, their unity, and their order. They moved forward in phalanxes, and it was difficult for the enemy to, uh, to defeat them. And Paul uses that same word. He says, there was unity in this fellowship in Colossae. They were together. They, were, they worshipped as one. They worked as one. They witnessed as one. There was order and, and fellowship and unity in their fellowship. And he also says, there was steadfast faith. In spite of the challenges that faced them, Paul was encouraged because they were established on a solid foundation in Christ. Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And the exhortation in verses 6 and 7 is for believers to live in accordance with the profession of faith that they had made. Sounds simple, doesn't it? And yet, if you're a member of this congregation, you have taken certain vows. You've taken those vows not before the elders or the minister, not before your fellow members here. You've taken those vows before God. And you have an obligation to live up to those vows day by day. To live up to those vows you made at home, at work, in your recreation, wherever you may happen to be. True believers have, as Paul says, received Christ Jesus the Lord. And this points to the fullness and the completeness of the salvation that they had received in Christ. And you see, Paul here again is warning the believers about listening to false teachers to tell them that something else was needed. He says, you have received Christ Jesus. You don't need anything else. I'm going to finish with four phrases that describe the Christian walk or the Christian life. Paul says first that they had been firmly rooted, which speaks of being securely planted in Christ. And the, the tense of the Greek in, in this, uh, this passage is it indicates an act that is done once for all in the past 
but it has a continuing effect in the present. An act done in the past that has a continuing effect in the present. Somebody who is rooted in Christ by saving faith will show in his life that living relationship that he has with Christ. You say that you are born again. You say that you have been rooted in Christ. Is that evident? Not just here. Is it evident when you go to work tomorrow? When you go to school tomorrow? Is it evident when you play football? Is it evident when you're in the supermarket? Is it evident when somebody cuts you up on the road and makes you break hastily? Is the fact that we are in Christ noticeable then? Or do we return to the ways and the thoughts and the words of the world? Paul said they had been firmly rooted. And if we are firmly rooted in Christ by faith, it will show in our life in a living relationship that we have with Christ. The second phrase is being built up in him. And this has a picture of a tall building that is gradually getting, bit, uh, getting bigger as the days go by. The Christian who is walking in Christ should be becoming more Christ-like day by day. I wonder, is that the case? Or were we more zealous for Christ when we first came to Christ? Were we full of enthusiasm when we were first born again? When we passed from darkness into light, was there an excitement about us? Was there a joy about us? And yet, over the years, it's dissipated. Over the year, over the years, it's faded away. Now, if we were honest with ourselves, it could be said of us what, is, what was said of the church in Laodicea. You've lost your first love. You've become cold, cold-hearted. You no longer have a passion for evangelism. You no longer have a desire to see people brought to Christ. Being built up in him has that picture of getting stronger and better and better as the years go by, rather than declining with the increasing years. Firmly rooted, being built up, and the third phrase also speaks of something that is continuous, becoming ever more established in the faith. A mature Christian 
will have an even and ever firmer grip on eternal realities and the deeper assurance of the faith as it is in Jesus. A few years ago, I was rebuked by a dear friend of mine who's passed into glory. He said to me, do you often think about heaven? And I said, no. No, I don't. Although at my age, I'm getting closer to it. I should be meditating more about heaven. I should be meditating more and more about the glory of heaven, the wonder of heaven, and to long for it. See, this is what Paul was saying here, becoming ever more established in the faith, to have a firmer grip on eternal realities. We should have, we should have heaven just before us. And then lastly, Paul speaks of that continuing thankfulness that should be a noticeable part of the life of the Christian. A proper and growing thankfulness to God will inevitably lead and show itself in a spirit of praise that will show itself in ready obedience to the word of God. We live, sadly, in a complaining world. Everyone now talks about their rights, never about their responsibilities, but about their rights. They complain when they feel they've been badly treated. They complain when they don't get as much as somebody else gets. Christians should not be like that. Christians should be thankful every day. Thankful for the breath that God gives to us day by day. Thankful that God gives us a measure of health and strength. Yes, we might, be, we might like to be healthier than we are. We might like to have all our faculties once again. I would love to be like I was when I was 20, but I'm not. And I'm thankful for the years that God has given me. I'm thankful for the blessings that God has richly poured upon me in my home, in my family, in my work. We are to be thankful. A Christian who is truly thankful to the Lord for all that he has done for him, will be one who gives glad and ready service to the Lord and to his people. If we're thankful, we will always want to say to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Not what would I like to do, what would give me great pleasure? What would enhance my standing in the congregation? What would enhance my standing in the community? No. 
Lord, thank you for all that you've done for me. What can I do to serve you? What can I do to please you? And that's what Paul's talking about here. He warns them about the danger. He has a great desire for them. They won't be strengthened. They might be bound together in love. They might have an assurance of the truth and the knowledge of the mysteries of God. He warns them about being deceived. And he tells them, you believe in Christ, so live like it. You've been firmly rooted. Are you being built up? Are you becoming more established in your faith? And are you always thankful for all that God in his mercy has done for you? Amen.